First scripture tonight comes from Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 7. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then from Isaiah 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Andy. Good job, Nick. It was your first time. You did well. How about some clapping, hand clapping? Yes. I like to embarrass people. He just got it. Um, a few, uh, Kendi, I will draw on myself if I hold on to that too long. Um, hi, I'm Brad. It's nice to see some of you again. Uh, some of you haven't met me yet. You will see how you think of me later. Uh, a few months ago, I was driving to a concert, and it was a, it was a Christian concert. It was a worship concert, and I had these feelings in me like, oh man, I'm going to a worship concert. Uh, it, it's it's okay to say that I'm a pastor, right? I can I can no, I can't say that. I'm fired. Uh, but I had these thoughts like, this is the last place I want to go is to a worship concert. First of all, I'm paying money to worship God, which just seemed, it seemed weird. All of these things were built up inside of me, and I'm like, I don't want to go, but my wife really wants me to be there. And I could really use some Jesus time. I could use an experience here. I really wanted it. I was in, coming off of a season where it was just dry and it was hard, and I, I needed this time, but I didn't want to go. And so I'm driving by myself, and I'm driving down these hills, coming to the, the arena, and I, I pull up, and I see, this is going to sound bad, I see a bunch of Christians, and I'm like, great. <laughs> we all look the same. You can pick us out of a crowd real easy. Uh, and so I, I, they're all crossing the street and they're being really polite. And it's like, man, come on. <laughs> I go to the parking lot and the nice person uh, finds me a spot that was real close. And it's like, man, I'm trying to find a reason why I can't come. And, and I got here with no traffic and everyone else had to sit in traffic. And it's just everything is happening where it's like, I don't want to be here right now. This is dumb. And I go inside, and the nice people, everyone was nice. Uh, oh, Christians, uh, they were, you guys were doing their job. It was good. They were, they were doing what they're supposed to be, being kind. And so I, I go, and, and I go into there, and they show me the seat, and it's a good seat. And everything is perfect. Kendi was there. It's like, great, Kendi's here too. Wonderful. 
And then I sit down, and the first act comes on, and like, yeah, cool. She can sing good. And, I, and I'm fighting this in my, my heart, and I'm trying not to let anyone know that this is, this is the, the toil happening inside of me. And then the main act comes out, and, and the guy in his cool accent, they're always cool when they have an accent. Uh, it doesn't matter if they sing good or not. If they have an accent, therefore they sing good. And, and, and he's cool, and he, he says something, and he goes, uh, if you're looking for something to pick on, you're going to find it. And I'm like, yeah, it will. <laughs> uh, and, and if, but if, if you're looking uh, to come to an experience with God, you're going to find it. And I sat in my chair and went, oh, well, that sucked. <laughs> because he called me on it. My preconceived notions going into the concert was I'm going to find everything that's wrong with this thing. And I'm going to write a 10-page paper with a huge thesis of why this concert was bad. But he said those words, if, if you're looking for something bad, you're going to find it. But if you're looking to find God, you will find it. And it made me think cynicism is far too easy. It, it's easy to pick on things. It's easy to tear them down. The hard part in this situation, and this is all happening inside of my, my being as I'm surrounded by nice people, uh, including Kendi, and, and I'm surrounded by these people, and I keep thinking, I don't want to be cynical here. I really, really need this, and so I'm going to open myself up to it. Three songs in, I, I have tear ducts. They work occasionally. I'm crying the experience I wanted, I was having, but I had to get over something, right? I had to get over my preconceived ideas of what it was going to be like. I keep thinking of that, and then I think about how you and I, us, how we sometimes approach God. We have these preconceived notions, and we hear Him all the time, that God is angry, why is he so mad? Why is he smiting people? Smiting's a fun word. I try to use it as much as possible. Why is he smiting people so much? He can also use smote. Uh, why, why, is, why is he letting all of these things happen around this world with ISIS and whatever's going on with the election? Where is he? And we think that he's distant. We think that he doesn't care. We think that he doesn't like us anymore. And so we stay away from him. We think that he's doing everything he can to just kind of let us go on our own and leave us alone to our own devices, that he's abandoned us. Oh, every once in a while he'll come back. He's like, Grandpa, he comes back and gives us a check for 50 bucks for our birthday and then, and then leaves again. Every once in a while we see him show up in places, but for the most part, what I get or what I hear is that many of us treat God as if he doesn't even care. And that's how we approach him. Or we're so afraid that we've offended him in some kind of way that he wants nothing to do with us at all. And so we stay away. In, in, in ways we treat God as if we have this contract with him. That we have uh, this like, God, I'm going to do this. And then you're going to do this and this and this. And as long as you fulfill your end of the contract, I'll fulfill my end of the contract. 
and we treat God as if he's our landlord. We pay the rent, and then he'll fix the water heater when it breaks, hopefully. But that's not the way God treats us. He doesn't treat us as if we're in a contract with him. Like we pay our bills and it comes true. We can't earn what we have with God. And so we approach him in a different way. God, God treats us differently. For God, we're in a covenant. Covenants are different. Covenants have regulations. They have things that you live into. But covenants don't have an if you do and if you perform Covenants have a, a, a way of focusing on the relationship at hand. And for God in Scripture, we see him over and over and over and over tying himself to us through covenants. For a covenant, the relationship is the key. The relationship will always remain. That's the focus of it. A contract says, what can I get? from this relationship. A covenant says, I'll give anything to be in this relationship. Do you see the difference here? When God deals with us, especially in Scripture and in now, He deals with us in covenant. And so tonight, as we're looking at this constant series, and if you have your books, uh, take them out, we'll be talking about covenant. Uh, tonight, covenant starts in the beginning, God has a covenant with Adam and Eve. It's called the Edenic covenant, if you want to use the fancy theological $2 word for it. That's what, he call it. That's what we call it. I don't know what God called it. He probably just called it life with Adam and Eve. Uh, this is how he dealt with them. He gave them this, and it, it might show up on the screen if Eric's doing his job. If he doesn't, uh, then he should just stick to worship leading. How are you doing, Eric? Well done, my friend. Uh, it says this. Genesis 2, you read along with me. Then the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from that, you will certainly die. There's a relationship that's happening here. And if you read the first three chapters of Genesis, you see this relationship between God and Adam and Eve, humankind. There's a relationship that God comes down and walks in the cool of the day with them. He spends time with them. He delights in them. There's, there's a friendship happening. But the covenant that God says, it's a little bit conditional. He says, look, this, this, this relationship has boundaries. Healthy relationships have boundaries. This is a boundary. Don't eat that. Trust me, it's for your own good. It's kind of like the speed limit. Don't take that turn at 75. It's for your own good. Uh, you will spin off the edge. And God says, don't eat this fruit. If you do that, you'll die. Uh, Adam and Eve didn't know what death was yet. They just, that sounded bad. And so we won't eat that. And it goes for a while. And God communes with them. There is a relationship there. It's a relationship of trust. Later in, in, the, in the text, they said they walk around naked and they weren't ashamed. They weren't ashamed to be themselves in front of each other. They weren't ashamed to be themselves in front of God. They weren't ashamed to be themselves in front of the mirror. There was nothing holding them back. It was pure trust. 
I think of the relationship, I think of my 11th-month-old son, Judah, and there is this absolute trust. When I walk in, he is so excited to see me. He crawls over and goes, da, and he, he comes over to the fence, and we have a baby jail, and he stands on the fence as I'm taking off my shoes, and he, he kind of shakes it, and he's excited. He's happy. He's not ashamed that he has drool. He's got a cold right now and snot and food. He's not ashamed anymore. He's happy to see me. He trusts me. When I sit him in the chair for him to eat, I, I, I get the spoon of the pureed mixes of food that you and I would never eat again. And, and it doesn't matter. I hold it up like this and his mouth gets all big and he eats it. It's this trust. When I walk into the crib, uh, uh, when, I, when I walk into his crib, <laughs> when I walk into his room and he's in his crib, that's how it goes. Uh, I guess it's his crib. And, and so he's, and he stands, stands there and he stands up and he puts his arms up. It's absolute trust. Some of us have had the experience of that relationship. We know people like that where it's just this pure thing that we don't have to do anything to earn that respect. We don't have to do anything to earn that affection. It's just there. It's not a contract. The relationship is the key. This is what God and Adam and Eve had. This was at the center of them. This is what they had in the garden. When God had every... And then something happens in, in the garden and we know the story. They eat the fruit. Uh, the, the covenant on their side is broken, and God says, go outside of the garden. It's, it's for your own good. He sets them outside the boundaries of the garden. Because if they ate the tree, they would have forever been in that fallen state. There would have been no chance for redemption. And he walls them off from the tree. God had every right right then when they fell, when sin entered. God had every right then to say, this relationship is over with. But in the middle of that covenant, in the middle of that binding relationship where there's trust, when there was brokenness and the opportunity came for God to say no more, what does he do? He protects them. We think that God right there would have said, no more, done. But God, every right says, I'm going to save you from this. And so they have that relationship. It gets broken. And then Genesis 3.15, God is talking to the serpent. And he says this in the middle of the broken parts. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will only strike his heel. In the middle of that fallen state where they have sin, there is this glimmer of hope. Theologians point to this passage, and they say this is when redemption, the plot of redemption happens. That in the middle of this disruption, in the middle of the fall, God's priority is not to smote or smite them anymore. God's priority is to save that trusting relationship they have and to continue it along, not to end it. The disruption continues. In the beginning, the disruption, God shows us that the relationship takes priority, but the disruption followed. It never, a cha it never changed God's approach to us. 
Right before this section in Genesis 3, we see that, that God and we see the trusting relationship. And then as, as, the, as the fall continues and the disruption goes, we get to Genesis chapter 4 and there's a murder and there's distrust. We also see that there's blame. When the, when the covenant was made, there was no blame in the beginning, but then the disruption happens and the first thing Adam does is says it was her fault. Uh, disruption between man and his wife, disruption between humans, disruptions between the earth, people started keeping score against each other. Wickedness began to grow. Disruption began to take over. The covenants, the relationships that we had between us were broken, but the relationship between God and us remained the same. In Genesis 6, the wickedness gets so bad, this should be on the screen as well. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had, had, come up, had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of, hum, of the human heart were evil all the time. And in verse 17 in chapter 6, God says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything must perish the wickedness of humanity grows, and God has ev even more reason to end the relationship. But instead, he keeps it going. If God, and the key word there is if, if God was keeping score, he would have every right to end the relationship again right there, three chapters later. But he doesn't. He chooses covenant. In verse 18, he talks to Noah. He says, Noah, I will, I will establish my covenant now with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your son's wife with you, and those two pesky mosquitoes. You should have killed them. <laughs> the Noah, this is called the Noahic covenant. This is when Noah, God says, I'm going to destroy everything, but Noah, I'm, gonna, I'm going to continue this relationship with you. When you and I would have ditched everybody else because they're so wicked and bad, God says, no, no, I'm going to step, I'm going to step into this. I'm going to meet them right in the middle of their brokenness. I'm going to meet them right in the middle of their shame, and I'm not going to ditch them. I'm going to bring them back. After the flood, God says, this kind of flood will never happen again, and he promises them and says, this is not going to do it again. I'm not going to destroy the earth with water ever again. But the disruption continues, and as you turn the pages of Scripture, all you see from then on out is the constant wickedness of humans. We keep going away from God, and my suspicion is because we think we've broken a contract and we don't really understand that God is into covenant, man, mankind keeps stepping further and further away. And then Genesis 12 happens. We're introduced to a man named Abraham. Abraham comes from the Canaanite place of uh, religion and, and, and location, geography. Abraham worships tons of gods, he tons of idols. And God comes to Abraham and he calls him and says, Abraham, step outside your tent. I have something I want to show you. And Abraham walks outside and God says, count the stars. That's the kind of nation that you will build. Abraham didn't have any kids. 
And then he says, count the sand. Can you count the sand? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. You can't count the grains of this sand. That's what your nation is going to be like. God approaches Abraham in the type of culture that we wouldn't think God would want to approach Abraham in, a polytheistic culture where God is not worshipped. And he calls Abraham out and says, I want you to follow me. A few chapters later, the hope is starting to brew that in the middle of all of this disruption, there is a hope of a God who is breaking through that disruption to get to us. In the middle of that, three chapters later in Genesis 15, God makes another covenant with Abraham. He tells him to come outside. They split a bowl in half, which has got to be really gross. But they split the bowl in half and they put him on the either side. Abraham falls asleep. And then God walks between the bull, the pieces of bulls, and says, I will make this covenant with you. I will bless you. I will give you land. I will make your people great. God is making this covenant. What's Abraham doing? Sleeping. Abraham did nothing to receive this. All of this is because God values the relationship with his people and he wants to be a part of their lives and so he keeps stepping in to history saying I'm going to get you back and when he walks in between of the bowls and he makes the figure eight infinity mark uh, culturally he's saying if I break this covenant with you Abraham may what happened to this bowl happen to me and so God makes this covenant and seals it And then the redemption begins because God promises Abraham that through him, all the nations will be blessed. Yet we think this, we think that God is always out to get us, right? We come to God with that kind of notion that God's angry. He wants to smite. He wants to punish. He wants to keep us away. He's trying to avoid us. Genesis 6, in the middle of wickedness, God comes into the picture and says, I'm going to have a new covenant with you. I'm not done with you yet. Genesis 15, God says, Abraham, you don't have to do anything to earn this kind of appreciation and love for me. You can just sit there and take a nap. Don't worry. I'll give you all of this stuff. God is constantly trying to establish a relationship with his people. And then comes Moses. Moses, after 400 years of living in Egypt, Moses didn't live there for 400. The people of Israel lived there for 400 years. After 400 years, you you tend to forget things, and they probably forgot who this God was. Chances are that God's way of doing the plagues was his way of reintroducing himself to his own people. He takes them out of of Egypt, takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai, And on top of that mountain, God speaks publicly for the first time to a group of people that he calls his own. And he says, I've brought you out of Egypt. I heard you. I'm going to take you away. You will be with me. Those are marriage words. God, again, tying himself to people, bonding with them. He says, you will be my people so everybody on this earth will see what I am like. God barely even knew them and he's getting married to them. He just met them. 
<laughs> Sorry, it was funny to me. <laughs> Didn't land well. God ties himself again, and this time the covenant's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's the law. And when we hear the word law, we think, boo, law, bad. But the law to the first century Jewish person, the law to the Jewish religion back in the Old Testament, the law, David calls it sweet. He says, this is a wonderful thing. Thank you, Lord, for your law. We hear that and go, law, ew, gross. We don't want laws. We want anarchy. We want to do what we want. But the law was a sweet thing. The law was a good thing. The law told the people of Israel what was demanded of them from their God in order that they can live into what was expected. God says, you're going to be my priests. You're going to be my representatives to the entire world of what I look like. And this is what it's going to look like. And he gives them the Mosaic law. But the Mosaic law did something. It, it did, it showed us exactly where we fall short. The Mosaic law showed us that we can't live up to all of it. The Mosaic law was a doctor's appointment when you go for a checkup and you realize that you have some problems and you need to be, they need to be addressed. We don't like to go to those kind of doctor's appointments. My yearly physicals are not fun. I have to go to one every year. My, my family has a history of heart disease. And so I have to go every year and get those EKGs. And they are not fun. But I go in the hopes that if there's something they see, we can fix it or address it or lessen the risk. The Mosaic law did that. They said, this is how we're supposed to live, and this is not how we're living. But the Mosaic law was incomplete in that it didn't, we couldn't live up to it. And they kept failing and failing and failing. But every time they failed, God says, repent, and I'll take you back. There's never a picture of God saying, I'm done. He never walks away. And then the last covenant, there's more, but the last one for tonight was in Jeremiah 31. This will be on the screen as well. It's a lot of text, but we're going to read it. The days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Did you hear that last line? And I will remember their sins no more. Does that sound like a God who's angry? No. Does that sound like a God who's trying to avoid? No. That covenant sounds like a God who's moving heaven and earth to be so close to you that he's going to write his name on your hearts and put it in your minds that you might know him. Many of us approach God as if he's not knowable. 
This passage tends to tell me uh, the complete opposite. I don't see that at all. Many of us think that we should be scared of God because we carry this immense amount of shame that we should avoid God at all costs because he's going to be mad. I grew up in, in uh, luckily when I was in high school, my parents got out of this kind of thinking and they took our family to a different uh, church. But I grew up in this way of if I didn't have a long enough quiet time in the morning, God would have been mad at me all day and I would have had a bad day. But many of us approach God like that still. That is absolutely not true. You might have a bad day and have the most best quiet time in the morning, and you might still have a bad day because bad days come. But it was this shame-based religion. It was this shame-based legalism that said, I had to perform in order for God to be happy with me. And that type of thinking couldn't be any further from the truth. You don't have to perform by to get this kind of appreciation from the God who's trying to know you. All you have to do is simply receive it. Abraham was sleeping and he got it. The people of Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai and went, okay, we're in. God knew that they were going to mess up but he still did everything he could in order to have a relationship with them. And he does the same with you. We try to avoid God steps closer. We think it might be awkward. God comes closer. It's not awkward. He does everything he can. And then the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 6, but in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. He's talking about this new covenant. It's better than anything that the old one could have imagined. Why? Because it comes through Jesus. That's the ministry he has. Jesus is the new covenant. The covenant in Jeremiah where it says, I will not remember their sins anymore was pointing to Christ who is our covenant. The whole time through history, we see God breaking through history, trying to get close to us, trying to be with us. Finally gets to the point where he says, I'm going to go, becomes Christ so that God can be with his people Christ goes to the cross, establishes a new covenant. This one is written in his blood. And he says, I love them so much. I want them to be with me. I want to be with them. And then he makes himself an offering so that we can forever be with God. And all we have to do is receive it. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who's crazy about you and is doing everything he can to be next to you. And all you have to do is turn around, and he's right there. Hebrews continues. It says in Hebrews 10, this is in verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, we may to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way opened for us through the curtain, 
that is his body. He's talking about Jesus. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance that, that what faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. All of these covenants point to something, that we can now approach God with confidence. We don't have to be ashamed anymore. We don't have to hide anymore. We could stand in front of him like my little son stands in front of me with his arms up going like this because we no longer have to be afraid. We approach with confidence. But what kills that confidence is that same thing that happened to me when I was on the way to that concert. Our preconceived thoughts of what we think God is will always stop us from trying to get to know God better. They become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they'll doom your relationship with Him before it even starts. I went to school in San Diego, and uh, it's warm there. And um, there's also this really good surf spots. And I surfed when I lived down there. I grew up in, in California. And when I, was, when I went to college, they, I checked on the box that I enjoyed surfing. And so they paired me with a Hawaiian. And uh, kind of stereotypical towards Hawaiians, I'm sorry. But he, he liked surfing. Uh, shocker. And so we, we were together in a room, and, and Dan was his name, and Dan really liked surfing, and he liked to go surfing all the time, and, and I did too, but I had to go surfing a lot more with Dan because I was the one with the truck, and Dan was the one with the surfboards. And he, he needed a ride, and so we worked out this deal. I'd go surfing with him in the mornings as long as he would buy the breakfast burritos. Uh, at Santana's. If you're ever in San Diego, look for Santana's. It's the best breakfast burrito you'll ever have. Promise. Uh, if it's not, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> if I remember. Uh, so we would go. This one morning he comes and he says, Brad, the waves are huge. We have to get out there. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I, have, I had this thing still kind of with large waves, and this was in 1997. It's, this is how old I am, 1997-98, freshman in college. El Nino was huge then. It was like a real El Nino, and hurricane-sized waves were constantly coming into San Diego. It would destroy piers. They were awesome to watch. And he goes, there's a swell here. We have to get out there. And I'm like, ah, big waves. Uh, when I was in junior high, I was surfing in a place called San Onofre, and I had to get rescued by the jet ski uh, lifeguard because of big waves. And so me and big waves aren't really friends, but my friend Dan is like, you have to go. And I'm like, ah, peer pressure, sure, we'll go. And I get out there, we're driving there, and I'm trying to run over nails so the tire blows so I don't have to go. I'm doing everything I can to avoid going surfing in these waves. We get to the, we get to the parking lot. Dan's already got his wetsuit on. He's already halfway out. And I'm like, oh, good. He's not going to notice. I'm just going to take my time. He stops and turns around and goes, dude, come on. You're going to miss this. And I, okay. And so I would get down to the water's edge. And I said, should we pray? Another stalling technique, always pray. Uh, <laughs> and I said, should we pray? And he goes, yeah, I'll do it. God, thanks for the waves. Amen. Let's go. I was like, oh, we need to pray for our friends back in math class right now. What are we doing? 
And we paddle out, and there was this channel, because the waves made this current, and it was easy to get out in this channel. You didn't have to duck dive or anything. You just kind of flowed out, and it was easy. And then you, you paddle over. And I'm sitting on the shoulder watching these waves, and seriously, these guys would drop in, and it, they would put their hands up, and the waves would be higher than their hands. And I'm going, there's no way I'm doing this. One of those guys was Dan, and he felt like he was home again. And I was like, there's, I'm just going to sit here and try and find a way back to shore that does not involve one of those things. He notices that I'm avoiding this again. And he comes over and goes, you just got to try it, man. Just take a small one. It'll change your life. Okay. And peer pressure. And there's no other way in. And so I say, okay, uh, I'm going to try it. And so I see the small one coming in. Small that day was relative term. And I paddle for it. And thank God I got it because if I didn't, then the big one would have hit me on the head. And I get it. And I drop in for what seemed to be like a minute. And I'm going down this wave and I'm freaking out. And then I turn and get on it. And it was amazing. It was, if you've surfed, you know the feeling. If you don't, you can only guess. But this was one of the best rides I had ever had. The sheer power of the wave around you. And you look up and it's going over your head and you're hoping you get out in time. And then you do and you kick out over the top of the wave and you come over the side and the spray, just like the movies, the spray hits you because of the wind. And you jump off your board and you go, oh my goodness, I got to do that again. That experience almost didn't happen. Why? Because I was afraid. God's trying to have a relationship with you. He's moving everything to get to you. He never left you. And that experience that you can have with him is right here. All you have to do is turn around and take it. It's the prodigal son's story. All the prodigal son had to do was take that first step back. And the relationship was right there meeting him. So tonight, what's that fear that keeps you from experiencing God? What's that shame that keeps you from reaching out for a relationship with him? What is it? And can you get rid of it? Can you say, God, I'm going to approach you because you don't care what I'm afraid of. It doesn't scare you away. Is it that shame or that guilt that you are more disturbed over than God is? And that's keeping you away? Remember, he says, I will not remember their sins there's nothing they can do to make me love them any less. What's preventing you from coming out there and grabbing it? Tonight, as we take communion, when Jesus set up this new covenant with his blood, he did this so that we can remember what he did. What we're remembering is the fact that Christ came to earth so that he and us can be friends again. Paul says it in Romans, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us so we can be reconciled back to a relationship with him. This is what we remember when we have communion. 
On the night before Christ died, he took the, the bread and he broke it and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is a new covenant that I'm setting up here. As long as you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then he said, same night, he took the cup and said, this is the blood poured out for you. A new covenant, a new relationship. As long as you do this, as long as you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And like the other covenants, all we have to do is receive it. So tonight before you come, do some searching. What's stopping you from going further in the relationship? And what's it going to take for you to let it go so you can grab onto this? It's better. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that through history you're always trying to have a relationship with us. You moved heaven and earth to be with us so that we can be with you. You can be our God. We can be your people. And we thank you for that today. And Lord, as we remember, may we draw near to you. In your name we pray.